It's time for building the game. Building the game. Building the game. Building the game. Tabletop game design. Which isn't friends. It's at the end of the episode. That's when it technically ends. Hello and welcome to Building the Game, a documentary podcast. Today is Monday, September 2nd, and you're listening to episode 379. I'm your host, Jason, here, hanging out. Hey, my voice is a little raspy. Sorry, I'm just back from Grand Con. You'll hear more about that in a couple episodes. Um, But yeah, I just wanted to catch up with you real quick and remind you of our awesome activity thing contest going on where I need you all to give us game ideas. Uh, And that should be uh, topics, uh, titles, mechanics, components, all sorts of weird stuff. We're going to do a pitch challenge where all three of our new hosts have to pitch the same game. Uh, you know, based on the same constraints. I'm really excited about that. So if you could do that, I'd much appreciate it. So now, uh, on with the show. Well, this week with me, I've got Jason. Hey, buddy, how's it going? I'm doing well, Jason. Uh, I'm really glad to be here to talk about all things game design and fun. <laughs> you, you sound like it, yeah. <laughs> I'm stoked. Wow. I'm, why, I might as well have not gotten rid of Rob. It's just like sitting across from him. <laughs> Whoops. I love you, Rob. Just kidding. You don't listen to the show anymore. We know that. It moved on. <laughs> There's only so much he time you like, can sit in this booth with Jason's link. Hi, Felicia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, there is true. Yeah. So, hey, so how's it going with you? Things are going well. It's the end of a busy season for me. Yep, the yep. convention season with, you know, as an indie publisher gets busy. Plus, my wife is a teacher right. and being home with all my kids and working from home and uh, trying to get work done while still having everyone around me all the time makes it feel yeah, a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. So we're having a lot of fun, though. We, we got to go camping a few times this summer, and I got to go to conventions and did a Kickstarter, uh, kind of look into the future with some new endeavors. So um, it's been good. Awesome. Yeah, so we um, the last time we really hung out was at Gen Con. Um, that's where true. I hung out in your booth a bit, and uh, we hung out, hung out a bit after hours too. Uh, fun, played some stuff, had a good time. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, Gen Con was fun. It was different for me because my buddy Eric, uh, God rest his soul, he didn't die. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, we did spend some time in the hospital because he got injured riding scooters around town. Super injured. Uh, super so injured. Yep, major surgery. Injured. But became the legend of Gen Con. Yep, he's doing great. I hope he's okay with me saying that, but it happened. He posted on Facebook all about it. So yeah. So, uh, but despite that, like I was at a p- position where I've done enough of these conventions as an exhibitor that I was lucky to have two of my game designers who had new my two newest <laughs> games, the new newest games released uh, at Gen Con, happened to be there and were able to help me out a lot in the booth. And right. Right. It wasn't like I don't know how to do this. I've never run a booth. It was like. The booth took care of itself, and we had good traffic, yep. and we just kept busy. And uh, yeah, it was it was my probably my best Gen Con as far as like sales go, um, and one where I was just like able to not be stressed the whole time. Right. So that was yeah, cool. I both of our Gen Cons started off not good. Like like you immediately lost your guy who was supposed to help you, and he had to have surgery and stuff, so that was really bad. We had the whole hotel issues and everything, and the IDC getting canceled, and right. all sorts of stuff. And then, um, and then, like you, my Gen Con turned around. You know, I talked about this on the show before. It turned right around, and things got awesome. So, um, yeah, so that's it's pretty exciting um, to uh, 
to, to think about that, right? That things started not great, but turned out to be real good. And, uh, yeah. And I, uh, um, beginning the free hotel room meant that I spent a lot less money than I expected to, <laughs> That's a huge even though win. I, even though I bought more games than I probably should have. Yes. So. Yeah. I, I actually reined in the spending this year quite a bit. I only came home with a handful and one of them was a total impulse buy for all the wrong reasons, but, um, it was just so I could get an autograph. Uh, <laughs> the heavy metal Guar band Guar, yeah, was, was were, were they there? They were there one day, and I heard that were they in their costumes and they stuff? were in their costumes. Oh my Three gosh. of them were there, and uh, somebody walked by holding this Guar deck building game, and I'm like, "What is that? Guar has a game?" He's like, "Yeah, it's awesome, and they're gonna be here tomorrow." And I was like, "No way!" Well, 14 year old me was like, "No way! That's right. so cool!" Yeah, and um. Then somebody else came by with the box, and I'm like, hey, did you get to, get to meet him? And then he showed me the box, and it was signed, and he's like, yeah, they're there right now. So Jonathan Sheffer was in the booth with me, and I'm like, Jonathan, I'll be right back. And I left them in the booth, and then I went and dropped 60 bucks on this deck-building game I had never played and got my picture taken with Guar. Nice. And they, I said, I actually had Jonathan's phone because I had to leave my phone at the booth as the cash register. Right. So I was like, here, listen, uh, can we take the photo before you sign my game? Because if the phone gets locked, then uh, I won't be able to get a picture with you. And he's like, oh, uh, and one of the guys from Guar <laughs> goes, <laughs> he said, he said, oh, who are you? Like telling you, you get to, you get to just tell us what to do, huh? And I'm, or who do you think you are? And I said, well. I'm the guy who's telling uh, telling Guar what to do, obviously. <laughs> and uh, and he said, "Oh, that's fine. We'll just kill you later." <laughs> so it was like it was the best because you know they, wow. their whole shtick is that like they're these like time traveling people that yeah. are like warriors and yeah. they on stage they cut people's heads off and there's blood and uh, other right, bodily right, fluids right. that are dousing the crowd so they're a pretty violent band so they threatened to kill me so i feel like that was like a direct interaction i had that i wanted i wanted to go exactly that way but so i bought that game that was an impulse buy but then i only bought a handful of other things i got my hands on some of that funko verse stuff yeah me too me too and then a couple little things too well one of them being push did you play push with me no but i you and copac talked about how good it was so i actually bought it too yeah so that's a great game. It was cheap. It was like it's ten bucks. Ten bucks. You you had it. I saw you had it, and you were like, "I was like, where'd you get that?" You're like, literally next door. Yeah, <laughs> so I went yeah, and, and it's, it. it's got that classic filler status for sure. Like it's a mix of like Uno and Colorado and Pressure Luck, and like, oh man, I played it with everybody. I played it with it was like, oh yeah, this is really good, and it like plays in 10, 15 minutes. Nice. Oh, so good. So I I love when I can kind of stumble upon that kind of greatness. Yes, that is awesome. So, um, yeah. What else did I buy there? I bought um, patchwork. Um, I don't remember what it's called. Like doodle, the doodle, doodle one? patchwork, patchwork doodle. doodle. Yeah. yeah, yep, yep. Which so I already have second chance also uh-huh. by Uwe Rosenberg. Chance. Yeah. So like this kind of like at first I wasn't gonna get patchwork doodle because I was like this is the same game Uwe like really it's the same game I had that question it's not so okay. So second, it's the same mechanics, basically, right? All right. Um, but it's slightly different in the mechanics. So it's the you, you're you're getting options to draw, right? So basically, in um, in uh, second chance, you've got your blank board, and then you get uh, two tetrominoes come up, right? The two shapes. You pick one and you draw it. If you can't fit one in, you get a second chance. They flip up third card. Uh, 
if if you can fit that in, you continue to play. If not, you lose. You the game ends and you score, right? right. And you probably lose. Um, <clears throat> Patrick Doodle, you put out like six cards. Um, I think it was six cards with shapes on them, and then you have a start token, just like you would in the game. You roll the die, and that start token moves that number of spaces. Ah. Whatever one it lands on, everyone uses. That becomes a new start space, and that one gets removed. All right. And you do that until they're all gone. Oh, okay. So basically, you will fit all these six pieces on your board. Um, so that it's different enough that I bought it. It was like 19 bucks too. So it was, it was, in, it was hard not to buy it. Um, the other game I bought there that I was really excited about was my first Stone Age. Oh, really? Um, and I don't know if it's actually based on the original Stone Age, frankly. I just, I don't know that it is. Have you not played Stone Age? Oh, yeah, I've played Stone But I mean, like, oh, it's okay. so different. Okay. I mean, you know what? It probably is, actually. It probably is. You're building huts. Okay. You're building huts, uh, which is basically what you're doing in the other one. I mean, one of the main functions of the game. Um, <clears throat> but there's this uh, woolly mammoth, and uh, you can move him around uh, up to four spaces, and there's like nine cards, and you move him to the card, and you reveal the card, and if it's something you need, you keep it. If it's not, you have to put it back. Uh, so there's some memory aspects to it, and you're just going around this circle, collecting things until you get three items, which is enough to build a hut, flip the hut over, get a new hut. First person to build three huts wins the game. Um, my kids love it. It's super easy to play. So yeah, that was one of the other ones I picked up. Yeah, that's cool. One of the one of the interesting ones that I got to play was um, this game. You know, oink games like the Japanese, like they make these mm-hmm. really they make yeah, yeah. deep sea adventure and like these really weird aesthetically pleasing right, uh, right. design games. Uh, they had a new one called Nine Tiles Panic, and <laughs> everybody has. Um, nine tiles and yeah, they're like and they're, they're panicked they're double sided yeah they're panicked there is some panic it's got some real time and a time a sand timer kind of element to okay it. but it has like uh this thing have you played kingdom builder where it's the no, dominion I've guy yeah, okay, so like it. you pull out every game is different because you pull out three different goal cards and it directs what you're doing with all the pieces with like the 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 roads you're building and the places it's going to score differently based on where you're putting stuff right 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 so every game is different so this is kind of similar where there's a deck of cards that give you your goals for that round and there's these different features on the board like roads there's these uh aliens that like to eat hamburgers and there's these agents that have guns that are trying to shoot aliens and there's um, there's running like villagers kind of a thing. So it's all this really cute, quirky design and they're on there. These different features are mixed up on all the tiles and the three or four goal cards come out and it tells you like your agents must be pointing at um, ghosts to score two points each or the, the most roads that you can create that are that are overlapping or the most or the longest continuous road there's all these different like cards that are gonna come out mm-hmm. so every round you get these three new challenges you're trying to like uh, flip your tiles around and the first one to get it done flips the sand timer over and takes like the first place token oh, oh that's not so bad then yeah, yeah for for real time I yeah, don't mind it's, that it's quick <clears throat> and it's like so if you're if you're slow you still get time to finish what you're doing at, like hopefully if the sand timer goes your way but it was really interesting it was a brain melting game and it could have been because it was like we played late at the end of a long convention day but um it was a neat puzzle and the art was just hilarious like the ghosts that love hamburgers and and that was what the scoreboard was like it was this like these little pac-man looking ghosts that you're you tracking your mm-hmm. score with not right, the, right right not ghosts but aliens but they look like ghosts i don't know it's it's a weird thing but that was a really fun one that, that i played uh while i was there and then another one i played was this weird trick-taking game 
um, I think by a guy who used to be from the Michigan area and Renegade put it out. It's called Time Chase. Okay. And it's it's this thing where like it's a it's got trick taking. Like there's a Trump and the highest card wins. You have to follow suit if you can. Um, if you can follow, but have to play lower than the highest card play, you get these crystals. And at, and at the beginning of every round, you can bid your crystals to go back to a previous trick to play a card or to change the trump. So like it doesn't it, it's really kind of tricky to explain, but you're leaving every trick you, you you've played like out. Right. On so the you table. could win one that you've already lost. Basically. Yeah, you've already lost it. So then you go back in time and say I'm going to change trump to this because then my card that I played there won. Um, so everybody bids which trick they're going to play on, and then you go um, from the furthest back in time plays first, and then up to the present uh, trick. And sometimes you're the only one to play the new trick because everyone else decided they had better cards to use their crystals and go back in time to change nice, it. Nice, nice. And you're trying to be the first to get like a certain number of like the rounds like that you've won. If you've won like three or four, then you win. You've kind of manipulated time. That's really cool. Yeah, the time travel thing is like, it was done in a way that it's like, you're actually hacked traveling in time. Like you're going back to a previous turn to change something without like it feeling like you had this pasted on theme of time travel. You're just like mm-hmm. using the game to go back and like edit your previous decisions. Or now there's new information out that makes you want to do something a little differently. Um, I did terribly, but it was a really clever game. Nice. So that was that was fun. To see. I always love seeing some new small box games that like add something really unique and different, and mm-hmm. you know look pretty. So that was that was fun. Very cool, very cool. So the topic you brought up talking about today, <clears throat> the topic you brought up talking about today, um, was the idea of going full time in the game industry. Yeah. Um, your perspective specifically as a publisher. Uh, but we've also had lots of friends who are full-time designers. Well, not lots of friends because there's not a lot of full-time designers out there. Um, there are some that we know. Um, you know, I'm now designing part full-time, right? Where I'm, that's part of my income that I, I count on, um, which is really weird for me. Um, you know, and I also have other work that I do, just like you uh, have some other work you do as well. And so, but it, it was an interesting topic um, because I think it's a lot of thing. It's a thing that. A lot of designers have thought about uh, whether they've thought, oh, I could do that or, oh, that doesn't sound attainable or whatever. Um, I think it's something that the designers think about. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that the more and more that the industry is growing, the more people are seeing opportunities to make this a career. Um, for me, I've always had the entrepreneur like bent to it. Like I wanted to be the creative it was designing games or creating the brand and the company and running the business that was like putting games out there. So um, I think my skills are kind of, they work well for those kind of avenues that I've like focused most of my mm-hmm. participation in the game industry on. Right. Um, because I am a creative and that's kind of what I do. And then um, working with teams to bring an idea to completion is like another thing that I really like to do, the project management aspect of things. Um I had I've considered working in other areas of the game industry, you know, like going and getting a paycheck from someone else. Uh, right, right. But there's something there for me about like I get a little bit anxious about the idea of authority and having to work for somebody else. <laughs> so working for the man, yeah, working for the man. Uh, after having kind of like 
directed myself as an employee in my different in my ministry and like my other my other jobs um a lot of flexibility and freedom there so right right so i just said i'm i just gotta go i'm just gonna head in these directions um so three years ago i made the jump to do green couch full time mm-hmm. and that was after two years of getting the company started and i mean it was a challenge like i i I'll say that I'm not doing it full time anymore. Uh, as of recently, I went back to work as a part time hospice chaplain, uh, which gives me great flexibility and allows me to be able to keep working on Green Couch Games. Um, but uh, it takes some of the the financial pressure away. So right, right, right. I, I think the realities of being full time in this industry um, are that you have to be a certain personality, maybe or have certain valuable skills. Um, so I think that the the personalities that I see being really successful are people that like are energized by the hustle. Right, right, right. right like right. there's always a new idea. They're trying to connect A to B so they can make C. They're trying to build relationships. They're trying to get a new game idea in front of the right publisher. They're trying to like market like their latest thing. Uh, it's like a chase. It's a chase situation. We're always going after something new um, because the reality of the game industry is that very few games are going to be super hits that are going to make enough money to pay a game designer a salary. Or a game publisher, right. a real good salary. Right, right. So it's, it's about it's about staying relevant, new products coming out, new designs making their way out there. Because designers get paid royalties, and royalties are a percentage of a percentage. So, um, right, right. So to add that up to like a paycheck is is a challenging thing, unless you can keep that workflow going and you're lucky enough to land it with the the right people that can make it a success that will pay dividends for a long time. Right, right. I think that anytime somebody's working in kind of an entrepreneurial, small businessy type mindset, right? Where, for instance, I think being a game designer full-time fits that, right? You are, a lot of times it's about, especially at first, it's about piecing together work from different places to like basically piecing together income, right? <laughs> like, oh, I do this and then I also do that and then I do these things, Right. Um, because I want to be able to, to work as, as full-time as possible in this industry. Um, it, it's interesting to me that we've seen some people who were full-time game designers switch from being full-time game designers to doing different things. Um, you know, One we've talked about is John Gilmore is a good example, right? Sure. He went from uh, doing another job and being a part-time game designer to being a full-time game designer uh, to being uh, the head of development, I think he is, for uh, Pandasaurus, um, but also still game designing, right? So it's always interesting to me to see um, people who we consider successful, right, moving between the two things. Um, You know, I'm trying to think of anyone we know who actually full time, all of their income comes from game design, right? Publishing, I can think of a dozen people, right? But sure. But um, from a game design perspective, it's harder. I mean, like you said, it's a percentage of a percentage, right? Right. Um, and, you know, you have to sell a lot of games that have to do well, right? I mean, I could sell 100 games, but if they all do a print run of a couple thousand, right, then I've only sold, well, I guess it'd be 200,000 games, which seems like a lot, but, like, you get, like, one blockbuster and it's going to sell 200 to 300,000 games, right? And that's, you, you need to keep doing that, right? 
And that's <clears throat> a thing you can't really predict unless you get to a certain level. Right. Um, the Eric Langs of the world. Yeah. The, you or know, you know, the, the uh, Matt Rob Davios. And, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, who can put out a game and we know everybody's going to buy it. Right. Um, right. So that that was and that was the one of the reasons why I, I enjoyed designing games. I still do. But that is why I shifted towards publishing because I saw more potential. Like if I wanted this to be a career or that was going to provide a stable income, I needed to move towards publishing because um, there was just more opportunities, I think, to to make a living. Um, now, it was a whole lot more work than being a designer and saying, I have yeah, an idea right. and handing it off. Um but like you're you're legitimately running a business. It still has a lot of those aspects that I liked about game design, where I'm there. There is the hustle, there is the working independently and chasing your your exciting ideas and seeing them to completion. Um, but even then, uh, I think both what I what I've learned and one of the things that moved me away from from doing it full time was um, just the the exhaustion, that right. like. You're always having to like be on and be hustling and looking for those opportunities, like because if you because you're always you're always trying to figure out how can I how can I what's the next thing what's the next thing I can do that's going to be a success right right and that's 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 tough. Um, while it's great to have the flexibility to like be disciplined enough to just work the jobs you need to do. Um, to hopefully get to success without any guarantee that those things are going to hit was was hard and it's kind of you could ride the emotional roller coaster a lot of self reflection right wondering, right wondering if your skills are good enough for it or um or whatever uh, but the other side of it is like hey I get to do the thing I love and I get to go for it so like I I enjoy it but then it became this thing where the financial pressure I felt where like I'm committed to paying myself a certain amount of money and I, I am committed to doing this many things a year so I can do that. And then something happens out of my control that doesn't allow me to stick with that rhythm because I have to wait for people to catch up or whatever, you know, whatever it might be, whatever hiccup you might come into that throws off my plan. Then it stole like the enjoyment that I received from just being a creative. Like that's why I was drawn to it was like, I love being a creative. I love working with people. So let's do that. And then when I try to attach it to money, it really did steal the fun for me. And I'm not saying every job has to be fun, but like the whole reason you start a business is because you want to do more yeah. of what you love. Right. So, so when it started to be more challenging like that, like I thought, Hey, going back to like a more steady work on the side, maybe I'm just, I'm just doing part time still. Um, relieved some of that pressure that I have to succeed. And now I can find the joy again, which hopefully like when I'm more relaxed, more at ease, the stuff I make is going to shine with that coming from it, coming behind it. Like that that's where I'm coming from. And not that I'm just like, I got to find another game. Not that I feel I regret any of the games I've done or anything like that. Like I love all the games I've made, but like it started to feel like I got to find that thing so I can make sure to meet my own payroll. Um, Right. Yeah, so to just to really to really relieve that pressure helps me get back to the heart of why I set out to do this in the first place. Yeah, and I think that you know there's so many things that can like you were talking about hiccups, right? Like you have one game that just doesn't do as well as you needed it to on Kickstarter, right? Which you've had games that have been more successful and less successful, right? Um, all good games, but like 
again, we've talked about the fickleness of Kickstarter, right? And when you have like, okay, I'm making plans based on this and then that doesn't happen, that makes it difficult. And I think that um, even talking to publishers that I that I know, you know, personally, who've had Kickstarters that have done hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Like they're still hustling for that next game because like that's not going to sustain them very long, you know? And that's, that is crazy to me when you think about that, right? Like, look at this smashing success you had just had. Yeah, yeah, and I need to do it again if I want to make payroll. Like, right. wow, like that's a bummer, <laughs> you know? For I, sure. Yeah, so, I and I think, I think that's just the, the wall that we keep running into is, uh, I mean, there's assumptions people make about like, well, if I have one successful thing, then I'm going to have another successful thing. Well, I've had a successful thing that was followed up by a not so successful thing that I still cared just as much about and had to work just as hard for. Um, but had to keep keep trucking along, you know? And then, then you start to run out of gas a little bit if, if it gets to be just such a hard yeah. road all the time. But I think because of the growth of the industry, because of how many people are saying, I, hey, I make games too, and hey, I want to publish games too, um, the market has continued to grow. And now there's way more publishers that have reached a level of successful that like could have employees now. So people with certain skills, you know, background in sales and, and marketing. And if you're a graphic designer or an illustrator, um, you, you can maybe find steady full-time work in Mm -hmm. the, in the game industry. People who have shipping and logistics, you know, uh, background can be in the fulfillment side of things. There's a lot of games being sent around. Um, I think I think one of the worst things you can be in the game design industry is a game designer. <laughs> I mean, realistically, right? When think about it, like um, I, I'm in this thing that's got job postings for industry job postings, like on Facebook, because I like to watch. Like, if there's a part time thing that looks interesting to me, I might apply for it. But almost all of them are shipping and logistics, um, sales, or um, graphic design and art. Those are the things that people are looking for, right? right? Because game designers, frankly, are a dime a dozen. Like, I mean, truthfully, there's so many of us. There's a lot of publishers. There's a lot more game designers than there are publishers. And so, um, you know, when you're saying those things that are the skills to have, game design skills are helpful, but frankly, they're not, they're not the most marketable thing you can have in this industry at all. They're like the fifth most marketable thing you can probably have. Right, right. I mean, that's the thing, like, at, at those, at, like, we just were talking about Gen Con and, like, how so many game designers are just going around trying to pitch their ideas. I had right. dozens of people come up wanting to show me their new game. So, you're right. There's so many game designers, and most of them are hobbyists that aren't seeking to make a career out of it. So, if you're in the other side of the industry, like, that's, like, there's a, there's a river of game designers flowing right. towards the industry right now. So, it's not the hardest, most valuable thing to find, but, like... To be a really good one are the ones that that are going to have games that stick around and are memorable too. So it's right. like you can't you can't have one without the other. Uh, but at, at this state of things, it seems to be not to be doom and gloom. It's like the thing that everybody can be. Right. Though I, I will say, when I was at your booth, I did. I saw numerous people come up. Like, hey, is there somebody here I can pitch games to? And I used to be that person, right? Um, and as a game designer. And you you can give me your thoughts as a publisher, but as a game designer, I'm like, that's you don't win that way, man. You, that's not how you win, right? Like, you you work hard to build relationships, to set up meetings ahead of time, like just running around um, and trying to set up meetings at the show, like. 
Well, the primary reason most publishers are there are, are to make money right. off existing products. And they're pretty full with the responsibilities related to that. So mm-hmm. to have somebody cold calling you in the middle of your right. um, you know, your day of trying to sell games, uh, it can it can be a little I don't want to say annoying. I'm grateful right. that people want to consider my company for one of their games, but like it's it is not the ideal place to get me to feel like right. yeah, I'm really excited to look at your game. I'm just like distracted by five other things at that moment. Yeah. So you're not going to get the attention your game might deserve that way. And one of the things I've most consistently seen as a complaint from publishers about game designers is pitching the wrong things to the company, like not looking for fit. Now, if I'm a dude that walks up with a suitcase or dudette, as it could be, I didn't see him walk up and kind of look at your games. You're like, oh, okay, okay. You know what? Yeah, yeah. Hey, I've got a couple games out of my suitcase of games here. I've got a couple that looking at what you've got might fit, right? What I heard them say was, I've got games. Here's information, right? Right. Um. And so builders out there, if you're doing that, that's not the that's not the tactic, right? Funny enough, I actually had a very successful meeting at Gen Con that happened that way. But the way it happened was um, myself and uh, Isaac actually fostered the introduction. We walked up, we looked at what they were, he, he said, look at what they're doing, look what you have, you need to talk to these people. So we walked up together, talked to the owner, who because he recognized the owner, um, and said like, hey, I love the stuff you're doing. I've, I've read some other stuff you've worked on. Um, this guy's got some games that really fit with your line. If you've got time, you should chat with him. And they were like, yeah, let's let's do it. Like, And then we made a time to work, and that was the one I did on Sunday morning. So it's it's funny because that seems counterintuitive, right? But but the boxes that were checked there were started as a conversation about your games are cool. Here's why this could fit, right? Um, but that wasn't something that I was counting on. And I think when you're walking around with your box of games, that's what you're counting on, right? And I think for longevity in the industry, um, it's about relationships. So if you want to be a game designer, like those, those are your first impressions, right? With the right. people that you want to do work with for a long term, uh, to, you know, keep being able to do this thing. So to be aware of that, that's a, it's a part of the hustle for sure to like reach out and build relationships and keep things rolling. Um, but yeah, how you do it is, is, is am, as important as just doing it at all. Right. Right. So one of the tricks I use, cause I've, I've, I still walk up to people every now and then when I like one of their games and I'll be like, just start talking to them and then say something along the lines of, Hey, you know what? I also design. If you ever, if you ever, I don't know if you're ever looking for designers, but, um, if you are, if you've got a card or something I could take, or if there's, if I, if your website has information and they're super nice about it, like giving me a card or saying, Oh yeah, our website has blah, blah, blah. You can check there. Um, so, so anyways, I think that there are positive ways to do it too. Also, this is a plug for Cardboard Edison. They have this huge directory that's ridiculous of publishers. Yeah. And it tells you how to pitch to them, what they like, what they're looking for, good contact info. That's like five bucks or 10 bucks to buy that. Invest in that. That, And then follow the directions on there because that's going to save you a lot of time of going from place to place, trying to find someone and possibly just annoying publishers. So, <laughs> I know this was a side tangent, but... Um, yeah, I mean, but it's a, it's that a part is of not it, how so. you go full time. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that's just like the reality of like the hustle. Right. If you I respect do that. the hustle there too. I do, but yeah. that's not how you win full time. It's just for, not. Long term, sure. that's a bad strategy. Yeah, uh, I, I just want to go back to what you were saying about how like going full time as a game designer is is a challenging thing. And I think that the things that end up being full time opportunities for people sometimes do take away from uh 
doing the thing that you set out to do in the first place. Maybe you're yep. going to get your foot in the door and get that job doing development or doing marketing or sales, but uh, it's gonna. It's like when any hobby can become a job, uh, it it becomes a job, right? So, not that people aren't aware of that uh, reality. Like I know that I'm in a very privileged position to be able to have any sort of flexibility, but I just made a decision a long time ago that like I have to do work that is meaningful to me, um, and that is more important to me than money. And we will sacrifice as a family, you know, my my wife and I, um, to make sure that we are like living out those ideals, um, not just chasing money, right? Yeah. So no. I, I admit that we're in a privileged position because of that, right? Right. Um, so like, hey, if you just want a job you love, it, there's, you know, dig in and, and find them and be be adjacent to the, the industry that you love. You know, working in game stores, uh, you know, finding those marketing jobs, honing those skills like graphic designers right, right. who are really good or there's probably not enough. I mean, there's so much work out there. Right. Now, learning how to do it well for the products that are being created in the game industry is a significant um, specific skill set as well. So, um, and I can't imagine not burning out at the pace that it, of being an independent graphic designer that just constantly having to churn out work and churn out work and churn out work and meet deadlines. It's hard work. Um, yeah, and you can yeah. probably get paid more elsewhere. <laughs> oh yeah. You could work in an industry that's going to pay you way more than, than games are. But then you're you're going to be working on ads for Pepsi or something, right? Now right. it's what you want to do, unless that's your dream, right? And then follow it. Um, but no, I I get what you say about the privileged position. I mean, it was a little over a year ago when I said, you know what, I I want to do a job that I love. Like I want to do a job that I love. I want to do a job where I feel like I'm making a difference in the world, and I'm not doing that. So so I did my own thing, right? And we were in a position as well where I can make that choice. You know, as a family, we can make the choice and say, yeah, let's do that. And um, you know, I respect that a lot of people in our in the game design world don't have that opportunity, right? Right. They got to work a full time job, um, and then they got to do this as an extra, and they got a family, they got other obligations, and that's hard, right? Um, and that they may never be able to take the chance to do it full time just because of that scenario, right? Because it will never be a reality for them where they could do that, even if they've got ten to fifteen games out, right? Because it's never promised steady work; it's just not for sure. So. I think that there's the that the grass is always greener situation. When you are not working for money in the game industry, but you love it and you want you you're an aspiring designer or whatever, like you can only see the good of like what it would be to work in that industry. We're now having kind of made the plunge to to go for it and stick with the hustle for a few years. Like I look at the other side of game designers who just do it purely for fun with like no like goal of getting paid but just because it's like their hobby that they love and i i envy that from the position right, of like right. knowing what it feels like to have the pressure of trying to like start a business right um i yeah, played bands I, I i played in bands and stuff so like uh in the punk rock scene and it was all just about like i love this thing and i want to contribute and that's how i started in the game industry too like this like i have a creative thing i want to say and i'm just doing it out of this pure passion and mm -hmm. people might think it's weird but it's it's me it's who i am and so like that that music stuff that i had carried over into games pretty heavily and right. now that i'm like 
the the guy who owns the company i start to feel a little bit like mr big you know like the guy who like wants to i am here i want to make your dreams come true make your game and we'll make some money together kid right you know where like i look at somebody like my buddy adam vass who um he just makes these weird storytelling games he does and they're super uh, weird in the best way but he does it just as art yeah, yeah and he's like literally just covering his costs right i mean yeah. that's kind of his plan is I mean, he might make some money here and there, or whatever. Right, but, but I mean, like, I know he's not getting rich with what he's doing yeah, for sure. Yeah, and his company's called World Champ Game Company. If you want to check out weirdo storytelling games and, and stuff, I've, I own a few of them, and they're great. Like, and he doesn't, and because <clears> of, he can be outside the bounds of what is a product that can sell in a store, right? Right. You know, like because of that, because of him approaching it as an art, uh, as a hobby, as a passion, whereas. Jason and I have had this conversation many times and he's like, hey, I got this game idea. The first thing I think of as a publisher is like, oh, hi, how do you sell that? Like, I don't yeah. know how to sell that. Right. Like, yeah. So I don't think it would be a great idea to pursue. Like, no, dude, it's a great idea to pursue. It just doesn't have, it can't maybe have the right. same goal as like what somebody who's looking at the bottom line is going right. to have. Right. And, you know, I think that one of the things that's really important with that too is know the publisher and don't just know like the type of game they want to do understand the type of game that they can sell, right? That they feel comfortable selling. Um, and I'm going to be vague here, but I, and you'll know what I'm talking about, but there's a game I showed around to a lot of publishers, a lot of publishers of your size, right? Right. And then a couple huge publishers. And they both have the same concerns about the game. And then I showed it to some like mid-weight large publishers. And out of five that I showed it to, Four of them loved it enough that they want to see more and maybe want to do something with it, right? Yeah. And that was a game that I dropped, completely dropped because of that, right? And that, like, thinking about all the objections, because I, I showed it to you at one point. I showed it to you. I showed it to Mark. I showed it to other people, like, your size of publisher, right? And you all had the exact same concerns with marketability. How am I going to do this? Um, I don't know. I think you specifically said like, I don't think I can put behind this game what it needs to be successful. Right. I don't, cause it's going to need a lot of this stuff. Right. Right. Um, and so, uh, so the, there's a lesson here for a game designer and a lesson here for a publisher, right? As a publisher, you had the wherewithal to say, this is a fun game. I can't make this game work in a worthwhile way for you or for me. Right. Um, and as a game designer to take that feedback and not say, well, crap on it. I'm just not going to do anything with this game because no one wants it. And instead to say, maybe I'm showing the wrong audience this game. Right. Um, and that was a really big lesson for me. And the game still may never go anywhere. I don't know. Like there are people that think it sounds really cool and are taking prototypes and want to try it. But who knows if anything's ever going to happen with it. Right. Right. Um, and it was through like serendipitous events that I even showed it to people at Gen Con this year. Um, because again, I was kind of done with it because all of the publishers had that same consistent feedback. Um, so that's interesting to me. And I only thought of that because you said, what's the hook? What am I going to do with this game? Right. And that was one of your pieces of feedback was this game is going to need a bunch of marketing and it's going to need this, this, and this. And I don't think that it's going to be worth doing that. And yeah. And so that's, that's cool. Hopefully it's okay that I shared that story. Yeah. It's fine. So yeah. Sometimes you get this look on your face when I'm talking to you. Like you're like, why is he saying this? He shouldn't be saying this. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty pretty open about right. that stuff so. so and i you know and um and it, honestly uh you know if you want to go full-time you're probably gonna do a lot of guessing <laughs> like you you 
I, that's what I was doing there, giving that feedback. I'm just doing giving my best guess and knowing who I am right. and what kind of work I want to do. So I think that's important is like right. knowing who you are and what you want to do and what you're best at can help you figure out like if that path is right for you. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're not a hustler and a super social relational person, it's probably going to be harder to be a designer that like um, is out there hustling all the time right you know maybe the other side of it i think of uh uh people who focus on one game and they put everything into that one game like gloomhaven um has a huge following and it's just this experience that took a lot of time and a lot of grit to make this experience that really connected with people and now that's just the thing that keeps like churning for for right. him right um right. I think that a, a company that started out that way and then diversified, obviously, is greater than games, right? Like they were pushing Sentinels, like that was their moneymaker. And it still is one of their big moneymakers, I'm sure. Right. Um, but they saw we need to diversify, we need to get into some more stuff. And you know, they've got Dice Hate Me, they bought cheap ass games. Um, and I want to say I've heard of them acquiring other stuff, but I could be wrong. Um, and that I think is interesting. You've seen like is it Asmodee, right? Has bought like yeah. every game company ever. Um, like I, I think this podcast is actually owned by Asmodee. I haven't seen any <laughs> checks yet, but I'm pretty sure they acquired us at some point. Um, but anyways, so that's, yeah. And those are companies doing what they got to do to keep doing what they want to do. Right. For sure. So, and that's, yeah. I think that is, that's one of the other things that I've come to realize, like why I'm shifting away from full time is that like when I was getting in with great Harlan Hall and company, uh, it was the Wild West, right? Like, it was just It like, was. Boy, was it ever. Hey, we're hanging out our shingle. We're starting a company. And, like, everybody was playing pretend that we could have a publishing company and a game, too. And now, as this industry has grown and grown, things like Asmodee acquiring other companies and turning into, like, bigger and bigger entities and, like, the the smaller not small small but like greater than games following suit and like getting bigger and bigger market shares there are these things that are like oh this is a, like a real business like these right. are the people are like doing there's some things happening so people see opportunities and they're doing these businessy things like and when I'm approaching it from like it's going to be like a punk rock show where I put up my t-shirts and I put up my CD and like you know like we did it I did it myself and I'm proud of it and like you can buy it or not I don't care you know like that was kind of the vibe that I felt about it early on and and the more and more it gets into this like marketplace of like real business stuff going down that right. scares me because I know that's not like the heart behind what I did and I know that's not my skill set right like, right I've thought about investors maybe if I had some investors I could like hire the right things or do a few extra things that would give me to the next level and then I can make this a better paying you know more I don't know like the cash flow would be better the company would just grow but then all those things are like those are not my skills and that is not the heart that I had behind this. So I kind of am scaling it back to, to be more um, just myself and, and comfortable with that. Right. Right. And that's, I think that's important, right? Is again, knowing what you want your role to be. I, I've seen game designers who have been successful and that success has actually turned them off from wanting to design games because then it's feeling like a job. So they've stopped doing it. Right. And that's, that's interesting to me, right? Because when I become more successful, it drives me to want to do more, right? Like, oh, wait, like I'm, I, it's because it's the validation of like, obviously I'm not terrible at this. I should keep doing this because people want my stuff. So I should make more of it, right? Right. Um, but anyways, yeah. So I, I think one, <clears throat> one other thought is that I know this is a podcast for game designers. 
Um, but there's this celebrity culture, right? Like of like, I wanted to see my name on a box. I wanted to feel that, that excitement. Um, and that's a great thing. People who create games are awesome, but like it is a, it is one small role. If you want to be full time or have any participation in the game industry, and they're all so important, you know, from the game store owners that are showing off games every day to people who walk in looking for a gift for their, you know, their kids, to the people who are boxing stuff up, and and it's just like there is this image of like hierarchy, like the the um, the pedestal, the the thing you should go after should be to be a well known game designer, right, right, but like. That's not necessarily true. That's a great thing to do if that's like what your skill set fits. But like so many other positions that make it all work exist. And I think that like, um, I don't know, something about us Western people who are like drawn towards that. Like, I want to be a big deal. Right. Like what's so funny about that is you ask anyone who loves playing games, but is not close to the industry they don't know who the hell Bruno Cathala is. They don't know who Matt Leacock is. <laughs> right. They don't know who Rob Davio. They especially don't know who that guy is, even though to us, like, oh my gosh, he's done so many things. Eric Lang, never heard of him, right? Because outside of our tight-knit group, these names don't mean anything, right? Right. Um, you know, it's just, it's the facts, right? So if you're chasing, if you're chasing the celebrity aspect, you're probably chasing the wrong thing. Yeah. If I mean, you don't enjoy the work enough and the creative output of just like, getting your thing out there and, and people playing it. Uh, yeah. You're, you're probably not going to get super famous. No. And you'll get, <laughs> you'll get like Steph and I always used to call it nerd famous. Right. Like, and I mean that in a nice way. Right. But you'll be famous in your circle. Right. Everybody's like, you get 10 games out there that some of them sell pretty well. People are going to know who you are by name, but it's just going to be people within the industry. There's going to be a lot of people that go to Gen Con who live and breathe games but aren't in the industry and they're not going to know who, who the heck you are. Right. And that's the truth. Sometimes you're going to be okay con, with that. Sometimes at Gen Con, I wonder out of those 75,000 people, if how many of them actually even play games anyway. <laughs> right. No, I mean, like it's just a cultural experience in itself. Right. Uh, yep. And we like, see that all the time. Yeah. People, they're, they're walking around and they'll be like, Oh yeah, show me this game. Sure. I guess. Yeah. But clearly they're not there to buy games or they just play D and D. They don't play tabletop. Like they don't play board and card games. They just play D and D, which is great. Good for totally them. Totally awesome. Yeah, yeah. But they don't give a crap about all the board and card games that are out there. Right. Unless yeah. somehow something's close enough to the experience they get out of D and D. And then suddenly they're on board with that game. They still don't know who designed it though. Right. You know, they know who Monty cook is because they're super big into D and D. Right. Um, but yeah, so it's, you will never be a famous game designer in, in the fact of the matter is the biggest games, the biggest games are famous games. You could not tell me who designed them, right? Like who designed Monopoly? It was designed by a person or maybe a committee. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Right. Um, I'm sure, sure someone's going to find out that information yeah. and give you a history lesson. Seven, seven, oh, tell BTG. You leave a long voice message. Be nasty. I don't care. <clears throat> well, hey, we should wrap this up here. You were going to pitch a game, but we, uh, this is going to be something we're going to have to learn. Uh, we've already run way over time. Awesome. So, so you don't have to pitch a game. You got out of that today. Um, so anyways, we are going to keep with the, the pitching, the game format for the most of the part builders. Uh, but this was a great discussion and it went a long ways and around a lot of stuff, but uh, I was having too good of a time to stop it. So about 15 minutes ago, I was like, we're never going to get to this game pitch. That's okay. Let's just keep talking. Um, so any uh, closing thoughts you have? Um, 
I don't know, like be excellent to each other. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> um, all right, listeners, builders out there, you can, um, if you want to get a hold of us, you could email us at buildingthegamepodcast at gmail.com. We'd much prefer, though, that you called us at 770-TEL-BTG. Um, as the jingle says, please don't use the email, but you can if you need to. That's fine. You can also email us an audio file if you can't call us at the number. Um, one of the things I've been saying, I just want to remind you all of is, if you have a, a voice message for someone specific, one of the hosts uh, being either Nicole, Jason, or Julio, or myself, uh, make sure to put that in there so I will save it for an episode that they are on um, so that they actually get to answer the question. Otherwise, it's fair game for any episode. So yeah. Um, you can find me on Twitter at, at J.E. Slingerland. The podcast is at PodcastBTG. Uh, Jason, you are... At Jason Kotarski or okay. at Green Couch Games. Cool, cool. I'm trying to learn everyone's new Twitter handles. I'm so used to saying like Rob's and mine. It's very easy. And actually, I didn't have to say it half the time. Rob said it. So, uh, But you can find us in all the podcast places. It's going to be great. Download us lots. Makes us feel really good about the new co-host when you download lots of our shows. So um, yeah, so that is all we have for tonight. So uh, good night. Good night. Building the game, building the game, with Jason and friends, with Jason and friends. Building the game, building the game, with Jason and friends, with Jason and friends. Dial 770-TEL-BTG. Please don't use the email.